Compared to Matthew, the Gospel of Luke's account of the birth of Jesus is more Instagrammable. Parents can probably relate to this. We tend to put on a pretty filter when we look back at childbirth, don't we? Inconveniences like the no vacancy sign at the inn tend to be forgotten when we recount our adorable little child swaddled, sleeping soundly. Visitors to the hospital are amazed. There is much glorifying and praising by angels, shepherds, mothers-in-law, and Facebook trumpets the good news of great joy to all the world. For unto us a child is born, glory to God in the highest. Post. That's Luke's story. Here's Matthew by contrast. Quote, she gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. Unquote. See, where Matthew truly begins, his story is in those days after the birth. Remember those days, parents? Luke's beautiful prose is nowhere to be found. Social media has gone quiet. Reality sets in. In Matthew's account, the very first Christmas is definitely over. The gold has been spent, the frankincense returned for store credit, and the myrrh, nobody really knows what happened to the myrrh. Mary and Joseph are exhausted, ready to go home. How do these diapers work again? The shepherds have gone back to work. The wise men, they're gone too. Matthew gives us that familiar, anxiety-inducing feeling that dawns on most new parents after the big day's over. Here's your baby, now you have to raise it. But it doesn't stop there. It's a credit to Matthew that he seems to understand parenthood here because when the angel with utterly terrifying tidings comes in a dream, he comes to Joseph. Not Mary, because when, when would Mary have time to sleep? No, it's Joseph, the righteous man, now just a dad, trying his best and having some very disturbing dreams. Get up, the angel shouts. He will not be going home to Nazareth in the morning. No, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, the angel commands. Herod is homicidal, turns out, and his family are now refugees, escaping to another continent and in the exact opposite direction of home, where that cute nursery and extra diapers will just have to wait, unused, in an empty house. Joy turns to fear. Peace turns to anxiety. Hope of home vanishes in the dust of the road. Christmas ends quickly. The lights are pulled down, the tree thrown into the woods behind the yard. And a new year dawns, bleak and cold, on the journey to Egypt. Thanks, Matthew. Matthew has set the stage for a grand journey, a classic adventure story. As much as Luke has brought us to this point, Matthew is now ready to give us the rest. Herod is furious. His bounty hunters are on the move. A picture-perfect Christmas is now an action thriller. And the allegory of it all, Joseph, dreams, Egypt, people of Israel, prophecy, Messiah, deliverance, refugees fleeing to safety with the very hope of the world along for the ride. Except how do they make it to Egypt? Where do they live? 
What does Jesus do in Egypt? How long is he there? Years? Matthew, tell us more. Why does the adventure story just break down? Where is that emotion, that detail, that feeling that we get from Luke? Shouldn't a good author continue developing his main character? Well, Matthew doesn't give us an answer, but plenty of scholars over the years are glad to give us their diagnosis of the Egypt problem. The charge from these quarters is that Matthew simply doesn't care what Jesus did on this Egyptian detour, or how long he was there, or what kind of apartment his parents rented, or if he got to try the local food, or speak the local language, or go on any fun weekend vacations. For Matthew, it's simply the fact that he was called there as the prophets foretold, and that he was called back as the prophets foretold. It's very important, these scholars say, to understand that Matthew was writing for an audience that needed to see parallels between the Jesus narrative and Old Testament prophecy. Joseph's dreams equals Joseph the technicolor dreamer. Jesus in Egypt equals Moses the deliverer. The voice of the Lord as said through the prophet equals out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, there's nothing wrong with fulfilling prophecies. It's the beauty of Matthew's gospel to show that Jesus is born to be king. But it's tempting to read this adventure story and see Mary, Joseph, and Jesus as simply checking the boxes of various prophets and their various prophecies, road tripping this way and that because Jeremiah said this, Hosea said that. The journey is not theirs. They lose their free will. It's a a grand allegory of the history of God's chosen people, and our characters are just caught up in it. The story is written for them. Of course, we can relate to this too, can't we? Don't we sometimes feel as if we're bystanders in a story that's already been written? That we're following some sort of unalterable prophetic path that's already been written, that we're, you know, of course we might not say prophetic. Prophets these days have another name. You might say statistical trends. 51% of Americans say they feel down, depressed, or hopeless. U.S. has the sixth highest divorce rate in the world. CEOs are paid 351 times more than the average worker. Adult church membership has declined 25% since 1999. Your pastor didn't even show up today. (laughs) And 43% of New Year's resolutions fail by February, with only 9% keeping them the entire year. So you're saying there's a chance? Christmas was nice, I guess, but Lord, I am glad it's over. Family is just too hard. No offense. Let's just all get back into that comfortable and familiar headspace where we can just think about ourselves again, what we need, what we want. It's just easier that way. After all, we are who we are. Statistics show it's inevitable. We can't change for the better. So why should we? 
it's going to happen, it's just going to happen. You know, generally, I tend to agree with the prevailing academic wisdom on Matthew 2. I agree that I don't think Matthew cares what Jesus, Mary, and Joseph did in Egypt. But I differ on the reason why. Perhaps it's not what they did in Egypt, but simply just that they did. Sure, prophecies were fulfilled. The boxes were checked. But the wonder of Matthew lies not in what is said, but what is left unsaid. The journey to and from Egypt is about that hidden life between the pages of trial, of suffering, of just showing up, of just doing for God. It's not on the marquee. It's not glamorous. It's not Instagrammable. In Matthew, we see the building of the first Christians the world has ever seen and their demonstration of total obedience to God in a unique journey of faith. Joseph, a changed man, obedient to God's every message despite the dangers of a strange country and a fragile new family. Mary, on a path fundamentally at odds with that very human need for safety, security, home. Is it simply that easy for Mary and Joseph to just let go of their fears and follow the prophetic path laid out before them? Or is this journey what Bonhoeffer calls the dare of obedience, the great venture that is the opposite of security, the giving of oneself completely to God's commandment? The dare of obedience is the meal prepared and delivered to the new family struggling to deal with postpartum and a difficult new normal. It is the impromptu visit after the buzz of the funeral has faded into an empty house of deafening silence. It is seeing the struggle behind the cute social media posts. And it's the handshake of genuine welcome at the doors of this church, Sunday after Sunday. It's that slow but unstoppable progress of building a Nazareth for the Nazarene, a kingdom community where Christ lives among us as savior, neighbor, and friend. Matthew's ultimate prophecy fulfillment is an invitation to us to build a home for Christ to come home to. Finally, after some years, God invites Jesus and his family back to Israel, to Nazareth. Matthew doesn't tell us, but it must have been exciting news to finally go home. How had living in Egypt changed their perspective? G.K. Chesterton says that there are only two ways to get home, and one of them is to stay there. As to the other way, Chesterton tells the story of a small boy living on a farm in a cottage amidst vast valleys with sloping sides. The boy went on an adventure one day to find something, such as the effigy or grave of some giant. And when he was far enough from home, he looked back and saw that his own farm and kitchen garden 
shining flat on the hillside like the colors and quarters of a shield, were but parts of some gigantic figure made of mountains on which he had always lived, but which was too large and too close to be seen. Has this ever happened to you? Where were you when you looked back and realized how incredibly special the home of First Baptist Asheville really was? For myself, I live in Quebec, I attend seminary, and I visit different churches every Sunday. I've learned to temper my expectations in these churches. Like a good, even-keeled Canadian, I sing the hymns, give an offering, smile and shake hands on the way out the door. I participate. And I really do enjoy worshiping with everyone else, Presbyterians, Catholics, Anglicans, Lutherans. Lutherans are awesome, by the way. But I live in Canada these few years with a secret, a revealed joy I couldn't quite see before I moved there. It is the unique and special joy of this place, a place that built the person I am from the day I was baptized and continues to live inside of me, even when I'm away, teaching me more about God, sometimes in my absence, than on a Sunday morning in the pews. This kingdom community is a singular place. It's truly a Nazareth. And please don't move to Canada to see for yourself. Just take my word for it. So happy new year. We wake up to the challenges of this world, the rot of individualism and the breaking of fellowship, Christendom in decline, dreams deferred by the constraints of our culture and the miracle of our lives, marginalized by dollars and petty demands on our time. Realign your dreams with God and sustain them together in community. Don't look ahead without building on who you already are. Remember your baptism. Keep showing up, even if it's hard. Know that you too are a Nazarene, a resident of the kingdom, defying the statistics, debunking the trends, surprising the world. Good neighbors are all around you building something much more than the sum of its parts. You are not alone. Your path is guided. God is here. I like to imagine the day the family finally made it back to Nazareth. It would be easy to imagine Nazareth as a backwater, an obscure little town, never mentioned in the Old Testament, and thus unimportant to Matthew's grand prophecy fulfillment. But it wasn't. Nazareth lay in a hollow surrounded by hills. A young boy like Jesus had only to climb the hills for half the world to be at his door. He could look west at the blue of the Mediterranean where ships sailed out to the ends of the earth. East to the frontiers of the Roman Empire to caravans of silks and spices. North the Sea of Galilee and south, yes, to Egypt. This is the place at the doorstep of the world that would build Jesus Christ, a Nazarene. And I bet Nazareth was full of 
welcome and wonder. Good neighbors who checked up on each other. A community who laughed together, grieved together, worshiped together. Community kind of like this one. Even though little Jesus had never been to Nazareth, I bet it already felt a little bit like home. 